So I pray. Amen. Would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the very last book of the Bible? That is, the book of Revelation. I will say something about the background of the book of Revelation to give us context for our study this morning, as we will be in this book of Revelation, surveying the opening chapters of this last book in our sacred canon. But by way of introduction, I want to set up the title of today's message and something I want to get at by making, by way of introduction, some cultural commentary from our modern world, which I hope will help us step into the ancient world as we get into the book of Revelation. So then, the title for my sermon this morning is State of the Union, Jesus Speaks to His Church. My sermon title is a play on something that happened this week in our culture, specifically in our country, in the United States of America. Now, unless your head has been in the ground or you are intentionally on a news and media fast, which I'd be really jealous of, I want to do that myself, you likely uh, are connecting the dots on the wordplay of my sermon this morning, at least in terms of the title. Well, this week, in case you didn't know, on the evening of February the 7th, 2023, the 46th president of the United States addressed the nation in his State of the Union address. The news cycles around the world and social media were filled with analysis and commentary after Tuesday's presidential address, breaking down the words that were spoken and also breaking down the divided and heated reactions in the room among the audience members, not to mention uh, the reactions of those across the country. Suffice it to say, it was a heavy week of polarities and politics in our media which are really exasperated by the last few years of tensions in our culture and our nation over much weightier matters of morality and justice and common sense, or lack thereof, in our day. Now, watching the speech and seeing the divides in the room and further seeing the divides afterwards in the media got me thinking about the role that a, a, an authoritative figure can play in bringing people together as well the role that uh, an authoritative figure can play in dividing people, uh, not to mention the damage that can be caused by the people and tribalism and echo chambers for folks who have loyalties to said figures and parties. That said, when I find myself personally frustrated with divides in the culture or certain authority figures, especially looking at those who are on the other side of an issue than I might be, I find it very helpful as, as a follower of Jesus to use it as an opportunity for prayer and self-examination, particularly reminding myself that, but by the grace of God, I too, I too, would be on the other side of one that is far more greater than a mere president, far better than a mere political party. You see, I would be on the other side of God Himself. I would be on the other side of his people if it were not for his mercy and for the ministry of his people, the church. I would be booing at God's words. I would be clapping at the sayings of the serpent of old. I would be sneering at God's people in my sin. But by God's grace, I was rescued from my sin and its destruction and dysfunction in my life, uh, not to mention the damnation of it in the life after that I would justly have coming my way apart from the grace of God. Now, this reflection on God's grace and our need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, which comes by the Spirit's power and regeneration, giving us new hearts and new minds and new births spiritually, and a new family 
together as his people. Well, thinking about this got me to think about those who are on the other side of God and on the other side of God's own State of the Union speeches, if you will. Specifically, I have in mind those speeches that Jesus gave to the nation of Israel in his role as their president, if you will. Uh, Far greater than a president, of course. He was Israel's last prophet and Israel's Messiah. You see, greater than a man elected by the people on a popular vote or by an electorate, this man, Jesus, God in the flesh, was elected by God the Father to be one of greater power than any president or earthly power. Can I get an amen? As Jesus himself noted in Matthew 28, and I quote the words of Jesus, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. One with such authority ought to compel every ear in creation to listen and every knee to bow. As the prophesied king of the people of Israel, not to mention as the Lord of the entire earth, Jesus offered a presidential address in fact, series of presidential addresses in his earthly ministry on this planet, specifically in the first century. His public sermons, of course, sadly fell on deaf ears. They were met with many boos and, and head shaking and belligerence and the like. And so, to quote from some of his presidential addresses by way of introduction this morning, if you would draw your eyes up here at Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, Because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. When Jesus says, blessed are you for seeing and for hearing, he is reminding his followers, those who believed him, that their belief was a gift from God. That is a blessing to have received from him. Without this gracious gift, they would be on the other side, ignoring and rejecting his addresses to the nation or clapping and cheering for other authority figures propagating lies just like the politicians of our day. It has been said that if we expelled politicians for lying, they would all be gone. Now what's true in our time was true in Jesus' time when he uttered these words. The politicians and the powers of his day were liars. They were thugs on both the right and on the left. Uh, The Pharisees of his day would have represented the modern equivalent of our right. The Sadducees of the day would have represented the modern equivalent of the left. And they both wanted him dead. They both worked to silence and to cancel his ministry and his message at every turn. But it didn't stop our Lord from addressing the union. Later in Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus in the Capitol building. And Jesus says, outside the Capitol building, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how I often wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What an indictment on the nation. As Messiah or... As, as president, 
to stand in the capital and say, you are being left desolate. That's Matthew 23. In the next chapter, from Matthew 24 through 25, he gives an extended end times sermon that speaks of national judgment that is coming around the corner for the nation of Israel and cosmic judgment that is coming on the whole planet in the end times when the king, that is Jesus, the president of Israel, when the king returns to eradicate evil, raise the dead, inaugurate God's kingdom, and establish peace, shalom on earth, not to mention a new earth and a new heavens. Now, speaking of the end times, Matthew 24 and 25, Matthew 24 and 25 provide a wonderful parallel into the book that hopefully you have opened to, the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, like Matthew 24 and 25, are popularly known as being end times texts. So I hope you have the book of Revelation open, and now I want to transition from this introduction into giving some background to this very important book, which presents Jesus' continuing State of the Union addresses to his people. You see, he didn't stop giving messages to his people. In the book of Revelation, as we get into the beginning, we are going to find him speaking in a very presidential manner, giving updates on, as he sees, the union, that is, Christ's church. Now, uh, this book, at the end of the Bible, does more than just end times. You see, it is a masterful literary piece. It was written around 90 A.D. by way of historical background, and, and at that time, it was speaking to the present hour that churches were facing at the close of the first century through the lens of the heavens and the future providential plan of God to sovereignly liberate fallen creation from sin and death and thereafter usher in the aforementioned new heavens and new earth through the return of Jesus to the planet in the last days. Now that said, the book of Revelation has much to say about end times, but it also has much to say about the past and it has much to say about the present. So it speaks to the past and the present as much as it speaks to the future. In fact, the section that we'll be studying today contains a kind of State of the Union address of Jesus to his church in that present hour, which speaks to the church in this present hour in which we find ourselves today. At the time of its writing, 90 AD-ish, Jesus had ascended into heaven. He, he had been gone from his earthly ministry in the earth for a generation. He ascended to heaven. He empowered his disciples to carry his message and his ministry, which brings us to the first point on your outline, the ascension of the Lord. Though Jesus had left the earth and ascended to heaven, he did not leave his disciples altogether. He, 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 before he left, he gathers them together and he tells them this in Matthew 28, 20. And I have the quote up here for you to see. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That said, the ascension of Jesus is not about him leaving his people as much as it was and is about him being present among his people. You see, Jesus said that it was actually better for him to go, for after his ascension, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his disciples, to baptize his church, to bring his very presence to his people through the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizing those that he regenerates through union with Christ and his Father. In, in the heavens, as he has ascended from the heavens, he is ruling and reigning over his people. From the heavens, we read, if you're taking notes, in Ephesians 1.20, we read how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father as the priest of his people. As the priest, he is actively mediating over his people. He is mediating this morning, Delray Church, on your behalf. 
We read in the book of Hebrews, let me put this in front of you, draw your eyes up here. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he's ascended, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now we see here Christ's place in the heavens. Hebrews 4. It's, it's not about Him being absent, as I said before. On the contrary, it's, it's about Him drawing near in spiritual union with Him to the Father by the Spirit. The fact that He is described in Ephesians 1.20, which I referenced a moment ago, as being seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens is very significant for this role, His priesthood, described here in Hebrews chapter 4. You see, the priest, when they finished performing their sacrifice, they would sit down after the sacrifice was performed for the sins of the people. Hence, Jesus is being presented, He's being presented as, as having completed the sacrifice for His people. The, what happened on the cross of Calvary when He died and bled out for us is final. As He cried out on the cross to tell us, die, it is finished. Jesus being seated speaks to the completion and finality of His sacrifice for us, and the position of the right hand is culturally the phrase for a place of honor. It's presidential. This language and its reality provides special theological significance for our understanding and our worship of Jesus because of its connection to the role of Christ as priest and as coming king. As a priest, listen to me, as a priest, he is here right now for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever you carried into the room this morning, as your priest, he is here right now for you. And as our coming king, he reigns over our enemies and, and he's going to come again and renew all things. As our coming king, as our, as our president, he speaks to us with authority when he gives his speeches addressing his people. Unlike our earthly mortal presidents that require fact checks, when the immortal president addresses his people, his words are true and never wrong. Now, I showed you a moment ago some samples of some presidential sermons of Jesus to Israel in the Gospel of Matthew. And here in the book of Revelation, we are going to see Jesus addressing his people again. This time it won't be the nation of Israel, it will be the church. Now, mind you, though God has saved and is saving one people for himself, his plan of salvation involves distinct programs of the Israel and the Old Covenant recorded in the First Testament of our Bibles, and the church and the new covenant recorded in the second testament of our Bibles, as well as a restored Israel in the last days, which is prophesied in both our first and second testaments. This divine plan of God can be depicted, as you can see up here on this slide. God has a plan that He is working out in human history through Israel in the past, overlapping with the church in the present, and in the future with the restored Israel. This plan will establish His kingdom on earth and bless all the peoples of the world and will maximally glorify Himself. As you can see, God is sovereign over history, working through Israel and the church to His end, which maximizes His glory in the creation. So then, the book of Revelation as a book speaks uniquely to Israel in the past, the church in the past, the church in the present, as well it speaks to Israel in the future 
and the church in the future as the gospel is spread into the globe in the last days. That said, the historical context of the book of Revelation is important for our understanding. As is any book in the Bible, when you jump into it, you, you need to have some context. In this case, the book is 2,000 years removed from us, so we need to have some context. What is going on? We got the book of Revelation open. What, what's going on against the backdrop of this? Well, the book of Revelation was written, as I said, in, in, in circa 90s, by the historic disciple John, who is a close friend, follower, student of Jesus. Now, now, being dated in the 90s and being attached to the historic John gives us a little bit of insight that is important to the background of the book. In the 90s, the followers of Jesus were suffering at the hands of a violent, racist, oppressive, corrupt government that systemically empowered paganism throughout the Roman Empire. In, in, the, in the 60s, going back 30 years before John wrote this, the church was suffering under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, who terrorized and tortured believers. If you're in our midweek church history class, we just finished covering this era. Nero, Nero was a tyrant. Nero was a bloodthirsty, maniacal man. And in fact, it is no wonder that Nero Kaiser, Neron Kaiser, is numerically typified in the book of Revelation with the mark of the beast, the 666. After Nero in the 70s, as persecution of churches continued, the Roman hegemony also was going after not just the church, but also going after Jewish communities. They destroyed the Jewish temple. The, the Roman powers actually exiled the Jewish people from their homeland. And that was a huge hit for the followers of Jesus, as the early followers of Jesus were, were Jewish. It was a Jewish movement originally, and so exiling the Jewish people from that area meant that the church was, was weakened. However, the church was empowered by the Spirit, and the church is triumphant. So that's the 60s, that's the 70s, getting into the 80s as the church began uh, to grow, it was growing in communities among non-Jewish people groups, among the Gentiles. And in this era, we have the rise of the Roman Emperor Domitian, who carried out ruthless attacks on believers, sadistically taking away their ability to worship and even taking away their lives for faith in Christ. When the book of Revelation was written, the state was in an all-out war. And, and uh, against the, the followers of Jesus, against the church. And so the author of this book, the book of Revelation, the author John himself, as he's writing this, he's actually a political prisoner on a small desolate island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. You can see that referenced in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. Let me show you a picture of, of, of this small island, and you can see how small it is there. Now, I, I said that John was a political prisoner because politics and religion were one and the same in the Roman worldview. The emperors themselves were seen as gods, and civic duty in the nation was tested and marked by worship of the emperors and the Roman pantheon of gods in public acts of worship in government buildings that were monitored by state police. In like manner that tax collectors uh, would monitor citizens in the paying of their taxes, uh, the state police would monitor your worship. Has, has Johnny come to the temple and worship the Caesar? Has Sally pinched the incense to the Caesar? Have they paid their dues to our gods in the culture? Now, all of that to say for background, as we enter the book of Revelation to hear Christ speak to his church, it's, it's very helpful to have this history in mind. 
To be a Christian in the first century was to be public enemy number one. I'm reminded of the words of the American poets Chuck D. and Flavor Flav uh, in their 1989 uh, track, Fight the Power. They have this line where they say, Our freedom of speech is freedom or death. we got to fight the powers that be. Christians in Rome had no freedom of speech, which for our faith, uh, the Christian faith, that, that is a public and sharing and verbal faith. Our, our worship actually requires our speech. So, so as we go and we proclaim the good news, as we sing to our king, as we pray to our king, we, we have to have freedom of speech. And without that, it is, as Chuck D. and Flav said, it is death for us. Now, thankfully, the early church fought the power. Thankfully, the early church uh, was strengthened by the Spirit to do so. However, tragically, the early church died for it. And because of their labor, because of their martyrdom, the church spread around the Roman Empire, and it spread into Africa and Asia, and it spread into Europe, and it has reached us today in this small corner of Los Angeles. So when John wrote this book, he was fighting the power with his pen. The very, the very words of his pen on the page were supernaturally inspired by the Holy Spirit, calling out the evil empire and the oppressive politics of the day. As well, his pen was providing comfort for the church as she suffered in these bloody battles, modeling the faith that Jesus entrusted to the church in turning your cheek, forgiving your enemies, lovingly sharing the truth of God's revelation in Christ. Now, speaking of revelation in Christ, this is how the book begins. Look at the very beginning here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. He sent and he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and, and, and has released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and his Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now notice that John speaks here, draw your eyes at verse 4, about seven churches in Asia Minor. As I was saying, the book of Revelation is concerned with present realities, also future realities, and they overlap. There were these seven specific historical churches in Asia Minor that Jesus offers a presidential address to. He communicates a State of the Union to his church about how he sees the church. That's what the State of the Union address is supposed to entail. You're supposed to say, what do you see going on in the, in the Union? What, what, what is your assessment of, of the culture? Jesus is going to give that by the Spirit, his assessment of the church, and presidentially have, have a message for his people. Okay, draw your eyes to verse 19, and let me show you the thesis of the book of Revelation. Therefore, verse 19... Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Verse 19 is a thesis statement. It structures the whole book of Revelation. The things that you have seen, that's what John sees in the past. That's what John experiences in the opening chapter as he's given glimpses or visions of the heavens. 
More on that in a moment. We will see that. And so the things that he has seen and then the things that are in the, in the present at that moment, specifically Jesus' State of the Union address to these churches in Asia Minor, which is recorded in Revelation chapter 2 through 3 that we'll survey this morning. And then finally, the things that have yet to occur, the things that are future. Okay, so, so the book has past, present, and, and future. Okay, now going to the, the past, the, the things that he has seen, what does John see? He sees his president. He sees his Lord. He sees his old friend Jesus in all of his glory in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And before he sees him, the text tells us he, he hears him. So draw your eyes at the text in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now skip to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes, they were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, and, 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 and it was glowing like a furnace. And, and his voice sounded like, like many waters, like Niagara Falls just rushing. Verse 16, in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword, and his, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Let's pause. So much could be said here about the sight of Christ and his glory, specifically the imagery that is being conveyed through this literary genre of apocalyptic literature. Speaking of apocalyptic literature, much of the imagery that we find here describing Jesus and the heavens comes from apocalyptic Hebrew prophets in our Bible. Uh, to understand the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament. To understand the Old Testament, you've got to understand the New Testament. It works that way. So apocalyptic prophets in the Old Testament, like Zechariah, like Daniel, the temple imagery from the Old Testament, it's all at play here in this section. Uh, for example, Zechariah has a vision with golden lampstands in Zechariah 4.2. Daniel, for example, speaks of the Son of Man figure in his vision of the ancient days in Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 10 which the Son of Man figure, by the way, in the New Testament, is Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself. Now, Daniel, that apocalyptic prophet in the Hebrew Bible, he has imagery of a figure who's dressed in a robe with a golden belt, Daniel 10.5, who, according to Daniel 7.9, is clothed in white. He's got the white wool and the hair thing going on. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, this figure has a fiery face as well, fitting the description of the text here and also fitting the description of the transfiguration of Jesus. You remember in the Gospel accounts, Matthew 17, 2 I have in mind, where the disciples got a sneak peek of Jesus in His heavenly glory. The veil was pulled back just a little bit. And He sits, according to Daniel 7, 9, on a, on a fiery throne. All of this apocalyptic imagery which conveys the power of Christ, the ascended Lord of creation, in, in the heavenly temple. It is no wonder that John responds the way that he does when he sees this. Look at what he does. Verse 17. I, I fell at his feet like a dead man, the text says. As you would and as you should. 
I'm often in conversation with people who are mad at God, skeptics, atheists, and the like, and they'll say things like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. You know, like, well, let's start with the when you get to heaven part, and... uh, and then the, you're going to give him a piece of your mind part. No, no you, you will fall down like a dead man. When mortals encounter the immortal God in Scripture, this is, this is what happens, and it's understandable. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 describes God this way, and I quote, Our God is a consuming fire. In His presence, we could not stand apart from having a mediator, a, a, a priest at the right hand. John You fell down. That's the right response. But John, you're in the presence of your priest. And as we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, though he's powerful and intimidating and there's all this power, we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, he is what? A sympathetic priest. And so here in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, how does the sympathetic priest respond? He He doesn't kick him in the head while he's on the ground. He says to him what? Look at the text. Do not be afraid. John, do not be afraid. I'm your priest. I'm your friend. I'm your savior. Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last, verse 17 says. Now recall the context of the book. It is written in a a great time of fear. John is a, a political prisoner on an island. He's been tortured for his faith. People were caving to the pressure. People were giving up and they were leaving town to go to, go to easier places. Uh, Jesus appears to John, a man who, is, who has watched his, his friends die. Of, of the twelve disciples, right, they're, they're all, they all die brutal and vicious deaths. And he's all alone, he's on an island, he's, he's, he's losing everything, he's watching people die. And Jesus comes to him and he says, do not be afraid Jesus appears to John to reveal to him that everything was going to be okay because he is in control. When I say Jesus appears to reveal, that is why the book is actually called Revelation, because it is a revealing book about Jesus for his church. In fact, the word revelation comes from the Greek word here in verse 1, and it is the word apocalypsis, which brings us to the next point on the outline, the apocalypse in the letter. We have the ascension of the Lord. Now let's talk about the apocalypse in the letter. This is why the book is commonly referred to as the Apocalypse of John. The ancient Greeks called this book Apocalypsis Ioannou, which means the revelation of John. Now the word apocalypse, apocalypse comes from the Greek, and it is a word that just simply means unveiling or disclosure. You think of curtains opening on a stage for a grand play. When the curtains are closed, you don't know what's going on on the stage. You don't, you don't know what's about to happen. But then the curtains open, and you get, you get to see what's going on. You cannot see what's going on on the stage until the curtains open. Likewise, you cannot know what is going on inside of someone's head if they do not disclose to you or tell you what is inside of them. Now that said, this is why it is a, a better title, I think, to think of the book as the Apocalypsis Iesu Christu, that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, because as the curtains open, you see Him. You hear Him. He's telling you about Himself. He's showing you His heavenly glory. He's bearing His love for the church. 
he's offering a presidential address to his people, telling them about the state of the Union. His glory is intense. The imagery is powerful. Jesus' words of, of, of himself are, in fact, powerful. I'm the first and the last. Look at verse 18. What does he say? I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And guess what else? Verse, verse, verse 18. I have the keys. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, it is important for us to recall the context again. Rome, Rome was an institution that was propped up by satanic systems and active evil principalities and unseen realms, demons infused into this empire. Now Jesus trained his disciples to go into the demonic darkness and fear not. He told them, don't, don't be afraid. He told them, I'm giving you victory and that victory is yours to claim in my name. I think of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. They needed to hear this. John sees Jesus in his power speaking to the church. The angelic messenger is saying to John, Hey, John, listen to Jesus. John, listen to him. Write it down and tell the churches. Tell them specifically that he has the keys to hell, Hades. He has, he has the keys to death itself, and he has overcome. Tell them that he is the first and the last, and, and he is alive forevermore. Oh, John, tell them. This is a message for us today to hear loud and clear. Jesus reigns above in the heavens over the earth and assures his church triumph in his mission. There is so much fear in Christ's church today. Now, compared to John on Patmos and the saints in Rome, we have no reason to fear. We have, it, we have it easy, to be frank. But still, the church in the West is filled with so much fear. The church in North America is filled with so much fear. In recent entertainment news, we could see people panicked. We could see people panicked in recent political news. Chinese balloons uh, uh, flying over our country and people are panicked and our government's failure to deal with it in a timely manner. Now, while I'm frustrated by incompetent politicians and further frustrated by partisan parties virtue signaling over what they would have done or what so-and-so should have done, we nevertheless, as Christ Church, need to be reminded that Christ rules over all the nations. And He is coming to do far more than pop balloons. He will vanquish all global tyrants. Every knee will bow. Mortal men will stand, every one of them, before the throne of judgment. And His balloons, His surveillance has captured every sin in our nation and every sin in our hearts, condemning everyone in this room and everyone on this planet as individual tyrants of one degree or another. Now again, in moments like this, as I, I shared earlier, we really need to stop. We need to be reminded of our need for grace. We need to be reminded of our gracious Lord, of our powerful Lord, and of His sovereign control. Jesus reigns in the heavens over the earth and presides as president over His people, telling us what is going on. And in this case, the thing is, Revelation reminds us that things... Hate to be the bearer of bad news. Things are actually going to get 
uh, 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 they're going to get worse. They're going to get worse before it gets better. And ultimately, it will only be resolved by Christ when he returns. Now that said, Revelation also reminds us of our marching orders. It doesn't matter if it gets worse. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. We can't control those things. None, none of that at the end of the day matters. Be reminded, the book of Revelation tells us, that we have marching orders in the meantime as we await the return of our king. And we have a responsibility to love our enemies, to walk in grace and love, and to proclaim the good news, further to shun the idols of our culture, to, to reject false doctrine, to strive for unity among God's people, to, to strive for love, to call out disunity and lovelessness in His church, and to walk as His church in the power that He has given us by His Spirit. Now in chapter 1, we see Jesus' power, and as John describes Him, we, we're, we're called like Him to fall down before Him. And then in chapters 2 through 3, we hear Jesus as president giving his state of the union to his church. Therefore, verse 19, write down the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after these. Write it down. And as John, by the Holy Spirit, superintending the Spirit, the words that come out on the page through John's pen, those words become the very word of God breathed out for his church. And as John is led, the revelation unpacks some of its apocalyptic imagery for readers to understand. In fact, look at the text in verse 20. John tells you, hey, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what that imagery means. So now we move from the ascension of our Lord, the apocalypse in letter, to number three, assemblies and lessons. There's not time to survey the wondrous valleys of chapters 2 through 3. There's not time to get into the valleys, but there is time to survey a sermonic bird's-eye view of the mountain peaks of chapters 2 through 3, and that's what I aim to do. If you're interested in studying further some of the valleys, Pastor Tony Shin uh, preached in those valleys. And if you go on our website, it's in 2015, uh, he started preaching through each of these letters, giving us uh, as a church a sermon on each of these letters. From 2015, he finished it somewhere in 2016. Those are available online, and you could dig in if you want to dig in deeper. But this morning, I just want to give us a bird's eye view. In fact, on everyone's outline this morning on the back, I provided for you a, a chart. And if you, if you look at the chart for a second, you'll see on the column here on the right, you have church description of church, commendation, rebuke, solution, consequence of disobedience, and a promise for those conquering, those, those uh, uh, overcoming, those pressing on. Um, so so you, you could dig into this. You've got that chart there. You could flip it back over and follow along as we just move to, through his presidential addresses, offering a letter to each of these churches. We've got to move fast. I hear there's a big game or something today, so, uh, so some Super Bowl or something. I'll, okay, the first address is to the church at Ephesus. Draw your eyes at, it, at, at, at chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you, and you find them to be false. That's, that's great. 
Verse 3, and you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You see, they had a number of commendable uh, Christian qualities, but there was something that was very tragic and deep about them. They had lost their love. The people in Ephesus were hardworking people. They toiled, they persevered, they, they stood up against evil men and bad doctrine. From the outside image, though, it, it would have looked like, you, you know, they had it all together. But from the inside, which Jesus sees, on the inside, you don't have love. What was that song? You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, they lost the love and feeling. Now, of course, love is more than a mere feeling. It is so much more. Love is an active living for others. Love is a commitment to the good of others. Love is, is marked by feeling and joyful affections. Jesus taught His followers that the greatest commandments were just that, to love God and to love people. Ephesians, you're, you're doing all this stuff. Yeah, that's great, but the main thing's the main thing. You don't have love. This indictment reminds me of many churches in our day and, and frankly, many professing believers who ardently stand up for truths. Oh, they'll fight people tooth and nail in social media and whatnot. They'll create divisions in, in churches. They'll bounce around even from church to church, just leaving things in disarray. Loveless, lifeless. In verse 6, Jesus agrees with their stance. Look at verse 6. He, he agrees with their stance about an aberrant group known as the Nicolaitans. Oh, you guys got good doctrine. You can point out these false apostles. You can point out the Nicolaitans. You got good doctrine, but you don't have love. Now, perhaps you know or have been burned by believers who are more concerned about being right than turning the other cheek and extending forgiveness and love. That's the problem. Ephesus lost their love. Now, that said, the Lord hasn't lost his love. The Lord loves them. And he calls them back to himself. Look at the text, verse 5. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He loves them. He's calling them back to him. It's a presidential address. He's, he, he has the authority to remove the lampstand. He, he's, he presides over them. This presidential address to the Ephesians in, in, in verse 7, if you look at verse 7, he, he appeals to those who have ears to hear to receive his message by God's grace. Let's move from this first address to the second address. We move to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a, a booming area with commerce and culture as a major export city that was known for its beauty and power. It was naturally protected by an, a, a harbor on the Aegean Sea that had access to, to Roman road systems as well. So this, I don't know, like Long Beach or something like that. It's port town. But behind the beauty, there was ugly darkness in Smyrna. All that glitter is not gold. You see, Smyrna was the home of a temple of the Roman emperor Tiberius. Now, recall what I said about religion and politics and worshiping the empire and how those work together. Well, Smyrna is a very, it's a, it's a major hub of the Roman imperial religion. All of that to say, it'd be a very tough place to have a church. Now, unlike the last address to the Ephesians, there is here, however, no rebuke for this congregation. 
who's thriving in one of the darkest places of the empire. Look at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last who was dead and who has come, says this. Hang on for a second. Um, what's going on here in verse 8 and also verse 1 with these angels? Who are these angels over the church? Now, scholars are torn by how to understand these angels. Here's the thing. The word for angel is angelos in the Greek. And angelos can be used for heavenly messengers or earthly messengers. For example, the preacher, John the Baptist, a earthly messenger, is called angelos in Matthew 11.10. Then again, angels in heaven are also called angelos in the New Testament. Hence, some think that these are maybe guardian angels who are watching over churches as spiritual warfare and demonic forces are going. You have angels who are, who are protecting uh, congregations. Others think that the angelos are maybe the pastors in those churches or possibly human envoys that are sent to John to the island to be able to bring the communication. Uh, uh, finally, there are the, those like myself who I'm inclined to think that there's probably a pun going on here with angelos and it's involving human and, and, and heavenly messengers in this spiritual war. We, we don't have time to survey the pros and cons on all these views. We've got to stay on the mountaintop, so let's get back to it. Verse 9, there's a game today. Verse 9, I, I know, verse 9, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus speaks to those who are targeting Jewish people. Rome, the empire, was filled with anti-Semitism. Aren't we glad that that's gone today, right? No, that's still a problem in our culture, as recent celebrity Twitter bans have illustrated, and American religious cults like the BHI and the NOI and others also illustrate. In any case, Jesus takes issues with this and encourages this church in the face of cultish confusion and political persecution. Do not fear, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus speaks of life after death here, and he also speaks of reward in the afterlife. As well, he speaks of suffering and satanic power, which is scary, that's scary, and yet the Lord assures them that these evil forces are on a leash. Those, those trials are only going to last for ten days, he says, which is likely a colloquialism for a limited time. For example, the prophet Daniel spoke of a trial of 10 days in Daniel 1.12. So it could just be a period of time. Now, bottom line here, their suffering is going to pass. It's going to be limited. And the next verse closes with Jesus' address encouraging them as he's offering his State of the Union message to his churches. You are going to overcome death. And it has that same closing talk that we saw in the first letter, in this letter, as is in all the letters about having ears to hear and whatnot. Now, let's continue on to the next letter as the Spirit speaks through the president presiding over his church. We move to the letter of the church of Pergamum, verse 12. The angel of the church of Pergamum, right? The one who has the, uh, the, the sharp two-edged sword says this. That's Jesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, I have a few things against you because you have there some who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who have kept teaching Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Earlier in Revelation 2.7, we, re- we, we, we see in Revelation 2.7, look at it, that Jesus personally hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now here he takes issue not just with their deeds, but also their teaching. As, as well as the teaching of Balaam and Balak, which are all references to unethical heretics in the Hebrew Bible who uh, had influence that proved to be destructive to Israel. Similarly, it seems the Church of Pergamum, like these destructive prophets in the days of Israel, the Church of Pergamum was influenced by bad teaching and immoral living. Jesus notes that they live in the shadows of this darkness where Satan's throne is, verse 13. Some scholars think this could be a reference to an actual carved-out theater on a hillside or to a specific altar of Zeus that was excavated there, or this could just be a a reference to that territory being a kind of a spiritual hub of demonic, angelic, dark forces. Now, either way, it seems the presence of darkness was thick, and it managed to come in the church. Churches have bad apples. That ought not to be a surprise. And the bad apples are a stain on the rest in their witness. As well, the bad apples are a distraction in their worship. Pastorally, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's a modern proverb that we use to convey the idea that the most notable or loudest people are the ones that get attention. And in this case, the squeaks of spiritual compromise pulls pastors away from actually caring for the sheep. We can imagine Pergamum, sheep were feeling it. They were discouraged. They were downtrodden. Now their president comes and offers words of encouragement, speaking of the afterlife and calling them to listen to the Spirit speak. Now we move to the next address, the church at Thyatira. We see the darkness, like in the last uh, address, has come into this congregation. Verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of idolatry and eat things sacrificed to idols. Notice that beliefs lead to behaviors. You believe something and then you start to carry that out. Like Balak, like Balaam, in the last letter to Pergamum, here we have another Old Testament reference and it is to Jezebel who personifies spiritual compromise and satanic darkness. It is no wonder that verse 24 speaks of the deep things of Satan. Now, thankfully, from Jesus' address, we see that not everyone was duped by the darkness. Some were holding out, and Jesus commends them. Look at verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. In any era, there will be churches that have compromised. And so preaching... Uh, So many who are are out there preaching a generic God or they're preaching these kind of self-help messages and and, and preaching anything and everything besides the gospel of Jesus Christ as the sole remedy for the just wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. So, so, So churches that are out there just chasing after the ways of the world and not bringing the message of God, oh, the devil loves it. The devil loves it when churches preach anything besides the gospel of the triune God. The devil loves it when we're distracted because it leaves room for him to infiltrate churches, to divide, to conquer, to pick off sheep, to discourage pastors, to stoke fear in believers, to, to, to win the war, to, to convince people that Christ's church is losing, even to the churches that are infiltrated. However, Jesus says, hold fast, I am coming. Look, at, look, 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 look to the churches who are overcoming. Look at the churches who are loving. You, you can too. You can overcome, you can love, you have the Spirit, you have my Word, you have my power, the gates of hell will not prevail. 
The churches in Asia Minor needed to hear this, and we need to hear this as well. The church in the West is progressively more and more fearful, in my estimation. It reminds me of the stories of soldiers in the battlefield after a war is won, and word hadn't got to said soldiers who are still hiding in foxholes and whatnot because they didn't get the memo that the war was over, and they're still hiding in fear. They, they, they look around and, and they can't see that the war is actually won and so they're still, they're still hiding. Maybe you've heard those accounts. Likewise, for saints today, if we are not careful, we will be in hiding, we will be walking in fear, we will be thinking the devil is winning, and we will miss the message of the book of Revelation that God is winning and God is on the throne. Recently, in the 2023 Grammys, Pop icon Madonna took the stage holding a dominatrix riding crop and expressing, and I quote, thanks to all the rebels out there for forging a new path. She then introduced trans artists Sam Smith and Kim Petras as they performed a song entitled Unholy. In the performance, Smith wore uh, red devil horns and was worshipped with gross erotic dancers and godless lyrics. During the post-ceremony interview, Petrus said, and I quote, I hope that it inspires kids at home. The thing is, this is not new. As one commentator noted, in 2021, Lil Nas X released his 666 shoes featuring a pentagon and a drop of human blood in a music video in which he gives Satan a lap dance. In 2020, Demi Lovato released an album, 2022, excuse me, an album in which she sings that she is, and I quote, like a serpent in the garden. And I quote, the, the fruit that was forbidden, I don't keep my evil hidden, I'm the sexorcist. Now I could go on with examples, and the point is, this isn't new. And the thing is, this stuff bothers me, that is watching our culture slide into darkness, but the thing is, as Christians, we ought not to be surprised when the darkness is dark, or when the world is worldly. Our focus needs to be on the church and her purity. Listen to our President Jesus address the nation, it's the church. And he's calling the church to count. He's focused on the church. Jesus sees the sin of his people and the lovelessness of his people, and that brings him a burden as their president. And he lovingly calls the church to listen and to repent and to come back to his love, to walk with him. In fact, this walking language is in the letter that we see next, moving on, Revelation 3. Revelation 3. If you look at verse 4, it says, you have a few people in Sardis, 3-4, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In the opening verse, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Jesus calls them to repent. Jesus says, hey, you, you might think things are well. You've got bodies in the building and, and bucks in the bank, but you're dead. You're not walking with me. Like I said, churches can have bad apples. Churches can be a mixed bag. Not everyone who attends church is actually a believer. However, at the same extent, not everyone has become soiled, the text says. Apparently many had, but not all of them. And on this note, I often meet people who say, uh, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, but you know, I, I, don't, I don't go to church or anything because you know, churches are full of hypocrites. If we knew our sins the way that God sees our sins, then we would understand that in a sense that is good news because those churches full of hypocrites will be places where we can actually fit in because we're all hypocrites. 
There's a saying that people who are waiting to find the perfect church to get involved, they need to be careful because as soon as they find the perfect church to get involved in, as soon as they join it, they're going to mess it up. The point being, we're all sinners and we all need grace. And the ministry of the Spirit is at work in the church to bring us in walking with Him and to grow us in love. He who has an ear to hear, verse 6, let him hear what the Spirit says. Two final letters. There's a game today. We've got to move fast. The letter to Philadelphia and the letter to Laodicea. The church at Philadelphia. Jesus says, quickly, look at verse 7. He says, He has opened a door which no one can shut. I love that line. I open a door and nobody can shut it. He notes in verse 8 that they have little power. And then in verse 9, Jesus promises that He will single-handedly bring the, the synagogue of Satan down. You, you don't have the power. I do. I open doors. People can't shut them. He promises to keep the saints from an hour of testing that is coming to the whole world in verse 10. And He speaks of overcoming in verse 12. And in verse 11, He says, No one will take your crown. I got you. I got you. To the church of Laodicea, Jesus lovingly confronts their sins, specifically their lukewarm deeds. Look at verse 15. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. They're lukewarm. Cold things are nice. Hot things are nice. I like hot chocolate. I like chocolate ice cream. But lukewarm ice cream or lukewarm hot chocolate with, I don't know, flies buzzing around it? Yeah, I'm not interested in that. Right? If you order a chocolate ice cream and, uh, from McDonald's or whatever and you drive off and it's not cold and delicious, you know, you're going to drive back. If you order a hot chocolate and it's cold, you're, you're going to spit it out of your mouth. Worse than spitting it out of your mouth, Jesus uses the word emeo, which means to vomit. He gags himself. He gags himself. This is nasty. Their deeds are nasty. Jesus speaks to the dynamics of the wealthy and the poor in verse 17 and 18. He calls them to repent in verse 19. So there's some classism and economic, socioeconomic things going on here that there's not time to get into. And he speaks of true wealth in him, verse 18, gold that is refined by fire. And true healing in him. Referencing a popular eye salve in verse 18 that the rich were really into. Jesus then in verse 20 offers this sad picture of himself. This is a very sad picture. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, hey you guys, hey, Jesus knock, hey you guys. If anyone, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Jesus envisions himself outside of a church, his church, knocking on the door, and no one's opening. This is a huge indictment. Uh, might, I, might I note here, because this is a, a, popularly verse that, a, a verse that is popularly taken out of context, it is often used in evangelistic uh, frameworks, uh, and often in a really kind of narcissistic, individualistic way, where the preacher says something like, Jesus is at the door of your heart, lost friend. And he's just knocking on your heart. If you'll open your heart and let him in, and he'll come inside of your heart. You know, you're like, that's not what the text is about. This is his people. This is the church. He's out in the, he's, he's out in the narthex. He's, he's like Brian in the back right there. There's, you know, he's just standing in the doorway like, are you guys going to invite me in? You know, like, am I, am I welcome here in, in my church of all places? 
He who has an ear, verse 22, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, there's a game today. Let's conclude. We, uh, we've, we surveyed the assemblies and lessons in there. Let's, final point, application in life. I began the sermon with a cultural illustration of February the 7th, 2023, State of the Union Address. For Christians in this nation of ours who are faithful to God's word, there, there, is, you know, there is likely to never be a presidential address that's going to be spotless and unstained and untainted by sin and the madness of the crowds in our culture. And believers are free to have differences over non-political, non-moral political theories. Um, all, all Christians of good faith, how, however, should be grieved this week, specifically uh, seeing an example of a leader, the leader of the free world, publicly swear not to defend the freedom of the most vulnerable among us, babies in the womb. The president promised to veto a national abortion ban if Congress passed one in his first State of the Union address since the Supreme Court's June ruling that left the legality of abortion up to the states. The president called on federal lawmakers to restore said protections and, and slammed what he called, quote-unquote, extreme abortion bans. In his own words, I quote, make no mistake about it, if Congress passes a national abortion ban, I will veto it. Now, meanwhile, abortion rights supporters say the, the State of the Union address was a missed opportunity for the president. The New York Times reported that uh, the Guardian also, uh, I, I read in the press this week, noted, you know, they were mad that he only mentioned it just once. In other words, we want to hear more about how you're going to fight to execute babies in our culture. It's so sad, it's so dark, it's so twisted. And to see people standing and clapping for such a thing ought to burden us as the church and the culture. God help us. Now that said, remember what I said at the beginning, when we have these moments like this where we see something that's just blatantly wrong. This isn't politics. We're dealing with morality. You're dealing with human life here. It's not, this isn't political. There's people on right and left who, who can see this, what ought to be obvious. But when we have moments like this where you see darkness so clear and you see people who just can't see it, it's, it's time for us to pause and you go, but by the grace of God, I would be there too. But by the grace of God, I would be on the other side. Look, we can't fall into the trap of thinking that we have some high moral ground that we've merited for ourselves. We, we didn't open our eyes. We didn't open our, our ears. We didn't open our hearts. We didn't give ourselves new birth. That was God. And God called us to love our enemies and to bring the truth with grace and gentleness to those who are lost relying not on earthly powers to convince, but on the Spirit who graciously regenerates through the message of the triune God. And here's the thing about this triune God. When the Son incarnate gets the microphone, He condemns the synagogues of Satan. Sure, but His focus is on the church. And here's His message, if we can apply it and summarize it. Ephesus was loveless. Laodicea was lukewarm, locking Jesus outside. Pergamum was licentious, Thyatira was lustful, Sardis was lulled, they were asleep. Two churches a bit different, Philadelphia was loyal, Smyrna was long-suffering. As Jesus speaks to the church, we see His power, we hear His passion. He speaks truth to us because He loves us. And I believe He selected these specific seven churches in Asia Minor in His providence because each of them provide challenges that every church on the earth needs to hear. Because we all have these tendencies in us to be loveless, licentious, lustful, lukewarm, and lulled. We may think the Grammys were demonic. 
though I think true demon worship is a much less obvious than a, than a guy with red paint and red horns. And we certainly should see the satanic elements of politicians promising to fight for the right to kill babies. That is likewise demonic. But when we sit at the feet of John, exiled on Patmos, when we sit with a man who is tortured for the gospel, who lost all of his fellow disciples to martyrdom and countless other friends, look at 2.13, Antipas, who was killed among you. When we sit with Antipas's dead body and John's tortured body, it puts everything in perspective. No doubt things were put in perspective for John himself. Recall that John, during Jesus' earthly ministry, John walked physically by Jesus' side. He was his friend. He was his disciple. And recall that John was really interested in earthly power. Remember that? Do you remember in the Gospels how, how, how John, the author of this text, how in the Gospels, John and his homie James, they asked Jesus, would you give us special places of honor right by your throne? We want positions of power. And now through his vision, John sees in, in the last days, and that's what he was interested in. He said, Jesus, in the last days, can we have thrones next to yours? And now Jesus speaks to John. He says, John, you're in the last days. And you don't have a throne, do you? You're a political prisoner on an island. Surrounded by sea all around you. Which, by the way, it's no wonder that John uses the word sea some 26 times in the book, and he envisions paradise as being a place without sea. Right? John was given a perspective, and his struggle also gives us a perspective. We, we haven't been placed here to have thrones of power. We've been called to suffer with the suffering servant who is our coming king. Now, this is not to minimize our struggles and things that you are going through, church. To be sure, we have many things that are deeply concerning. But in Christ's priorities, we want to begin in our hearts and in our church and say, Lord Jesus, our doors are open to you. Have your way with us. Point out our sin and draw us in faith and repentance. Further, we need Jesus out there fighting on our behalf. I love the line in Revelation 2.16 where Jesus says, I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's out there defending us. We have nothing to fear. He's our defender. He threatens to make war against our enemies. He promises to protect us. His rod and his staff do just that. Our suffering is personal to him. We, even in the note, he notes Antipas. He's upset about that. Our suffering's personal to him. When Saul of Tarsus is running around persecuting, Jesus comes to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? This is personal to me. Our suffering is personal to our sympathetic high priest. And all of our suffering is going to come ahead, come to an end when our suffering, when our, when our, the suffering servant who's become our sympathetic high priest returns as our coming king. This week on February the 6th, there was a massive earthquake that struck southern and central Turkey, northern and western Syria, which uh, left over, over 22,000 people dead. The earth is just filled with suffering. We talked about abortion a little bit this morning. The World Health Organization uh, estimates that roughly 73 million induced abortions occur worldwide each year. That means that we have like nine times that earthquake every day on earth of babies. 
Now the book of Revelation sees the suffering in the earth. And the book of Revelation ties that suffering to sin. And in a larger context of a holy war that is being waged in the spiritual realm, and of Christ over that realm, the ascended Lord reigning. In Revelation 6-19, through the Lord pours out His wrath from that realm down into demonic powers and into the earth. The Sovereign Lord pours that out just like in the manner that we see in the book of Exodus when Yahweh liberates His people and brings them to the land of promise. And so too in the book of Revelation 6-19, through we see the power of Yahweh liberating His people in a new Exodus. And then in chapter 20 and 21, we see the Messiah bringing His kingdom and He wins. If you get lost in the apocalyptic imagery of the book of Revelation, here's what the book of Revelation is all about in two words. Jesus wins. The apocalypse has been given an appropriate place at the last book of the Bible. My final slide to show you this morning, because as the last book of the Bible, it reverses the first book of the Bible. In, in, in the first book of, of the Bible, we see Satan appearing as the deceiver. In the, in, in the last chapters, we see Satan disappearing forever. In the opening of the Bible, we're shown a garden into which defilement entered. In the closing of the Bible, we are shown a city which defilement will never enter. In, in, in the opening of the Bible, we see the triumph of the serpent. In the closing of the Bible, we see the crushing of the head of the serpent. In the opening of the Bible, we see the ground is cursed. Hence, we have tragedies like we, we see in Turkey and, and Syria. The ground, the ground has been cursed, we read in the opening. In Revelation 22.3, we read, There shall be no more curse. Paradise is lost in the beginning. Paradise is restored in the end. In the beginning, we read of God walking among humanity and being in their presence. And of course, that, that's lost. And in the end, we see we're restored in His presence. What a wonderful and powerful book the book of Revelation is. What a timely text for us as we uh, had the week that we just had with earthquakes and shakes and divides and promises from politicians and shenanigans and all the rest. Church, hear your head speak to you words of encouragement and comfort, calls of repentance and faith, Church, come to the table now as we sing praises to Him and we celebrate what He has done for us. Take the bread. Take the cup. Come and sing. Partake as you eat. Think of Him who was crushed to restore paradise for us. As you drink, think of His blood that was poured out for you so that you don't have to have your blood poured out in judgment in the last days. As you come to the table, Think of that great Lamb's book of life in which your names have been written. Think of the door that He has opened that can never be closed. Think of the crown of life that, that awaits you for your suffering to serve in hard and dark places such as this place that the Lord has given us in this time, 2023, in this city. May the Lord be magnified in His church. And if he writes a letter to Del Rey, may, may we be open to hearing the flaws that we have and by his graces, hearing, hearing some good words as well. That we're long-suffering and we have love and we're pressing on. Let's pray. Let's celebrate communion. Let's sing to our King, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. What a crazy week. 
Lord, it, it, it's so sad thinking that you bless humans with gifts of song and music, and they take those and they parade around on stages mocking you. You, you bless our nation with freedom and, and democracy, and we take our, our freedoms and, and use them to oppress and slaughter and twist. You've been so gracious in your common graces to our culture. The synagogue of Satan persists and darkness hangs over us. Christ, we, we pray that you would be our defender, our protector. And Lord, we know that the darkness isn't just out there, it creeps in here. The problem is we can't see it. We can't smell it. We need you to open our senses so that we can see where we've been soiled. And we need to hear you say, fear not. I love you. I died for you. I'm here for you. As we come to the table, Lord, I pray that you would move among us supernaturally, spiritually, healing, restoring, drawing us in your tender mercies. Lord, receive these songs of worship, our, our offering, and, and bless us as we partake in the things entrusted to us, the bread and the cup, that picture and proclaim you. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen.